This message by C.J. Mahaney was recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Please turn in your Bible to Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 4. The church where I have the privilege to serve has, like you, been making our way through the exciting and exhilarating book of Acts. And prior to embarking on this great adventure together, I read a book by John Piper titled, Why I Love the Apostle Paul. I read this book, given Paul's prominent role in Acts, and in describing the suffering that Paul endured, I came across the following paragraph that deeply affected me. Mr. Piper writes, I am drawn to people who suffer without murmuring, especially when they believe in God, but never get angry with him or criticize him. It seems to me that not murmuring is one of the rarest traits in the world. And when it is combined with a deep faith in God who could alter our painful circumstances, but doesn't. It has a beautiful God-trusting, God-honoring quality that makes it all the more attractive. Paul was like that. Watching Paul maintain his humble, God-dependent, Christ-cherishing contentment through all his sufferings causes me to stand in awe of this man. I think we are all drawn to people who suffer without complaining. And by the way, this church is filled with people who suffer without complaining. No doubt there is one seated near you this morning, if not next to you. I've lived for 48 years with someone like this, my wife, Carolyn. The the absence of murmuring and the presence of Christ cherishing contentment, particularly in suffering, is indeed beautiful to behold and impossible to ignore. It is rare. In the 17th century, Jeremiah Burroughs wrote an excellent book that endures in its readership to this day titled, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. Mr. Burroughs wrote a book-length meditation on contentment that was inspired by our passage, the passage we will be giving attention to this morning. Mr. Burroughs was right to identify this godly jewel as rare, and I dare say it is even more rare today than it was when Mr. Burroughs penned his book. And this morning, we have the privilege of seeing the spiritual jewel of contentment on display in the life of the Apostle Paul. He pens this letter and these verses under house arrest, falsely accused, 
chained to a rotating number of Roman soldiers awaiting trial before Nero, all because of the gospel. And Paul not only models contentment for us in this passage, he reveals the secret, the secret to his contentment to us in this passage. So join John Piper in appropriate awe of this man this morning. And let's discover Paul's secret and the difference it can make for each of us as we read and reflect and apply. Philippians chapter 4, I begin reading in verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Since we are joining Paul's communication with the Philippian church late in this letter, as he is concluding this letter, a little little background is necessary so that we can understand what we are overhearing him say and communicate to them. Beginning in verse 10, concluding in verse 20, form a thank you note from Paul. It's, It's a thank you note from Paul to the church, for they have sent a representative of the church, a guy named Epaphroditus, with a financial gift to support Paul, who was in chains under house arrest in Rome, awaiting trial for the preaching of the gospel. Paul was responsible for the quarters he rented while under house arrest. And so this gift was a most welcome gift. This letter was written, the letter to the Philippians was written during his two years under arrest in Rome. And you will come to that occasion and experience in the latter chapters of the book of Acts, chapter 28 in particular. The content of verses 10 through 20, it is very personal and very relational as Paul is expressing his gratefulness for their care for him personally and their partnership with him in the advance of the gospel. And Paul describes his reaction to the unexpected arrival of Epaphroditus in verse 10. I I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. He assures them that he is aware of their care for him and support of him. This is a man who while under house arrest was certainly aware of and reflecting upon his time in Philippi. He was responsible for the church plant in Philippi. Philippi, the church in Philippi would have been the most trouble free church Paul had planted. And so the memory of that experience and his relationship with them was very 
meaningful. So suddenly and unexpectedly, Epaphroditus shows up. And yes, that caused him to greatly rejoice in the Lord that they have revived their concern for him. He he assures them he's aware that their care for him and support of him hadn't diminished in any way. They, They simply lacked opportunity. You were indeed, he writes, concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. We aren't informed why they lacked a particular opportunity. However, we are informed that they acted immediately and generously, sending Epaphroditus on what was roughly an 800-mile journey from Philippi to Rome. That, my friends, is a serious walk. That is a serious number of steps. That's, that's like today if you embarked on a walk from Knoxville to Austin, Texas. So this was indeed a sacrifice and a meaningful statement of their love for, care for Paul. But what we want to notice is how Paul is very careful. He's very careful in his wording because he doesn't want them to misunderstand why he rejoiced greatly in the arrival of Epaphroditus and their financial gift. He greatly rejoiced because of their friendship and their partnership in the gospel, not because of what he secured from them financially. And Paul doesn't want his response to be interpreted as subtly soliciting future financial support. He makes that very clear in verse 17. Notice where he writes, not that I seek the gift. So their gift and the love conveyed has been a serious encouragement to him, but he wasn't dependent upon them to meet his needs and typical of Paul's pastoral influence and care. He cares for them by seizing this very moment and occasion to teach them one of the most important lessons of the Christian life in verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And given the harsh realities of his circumstances, this statement of contentment in the midst of his circumstances is simply remarkable. I get why John Piper stands in awe of this man and the grace of God that is present and pronounced in his life. And we should this morning as well. So how can you and I learn from Paul? How can we learn from Paul so that we can say this morning, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And what is this secret? What is this secret of contentment? Well, the sweet news for us this morning is that Paul divulges the secret to his experience of contentment to us in this passage. So three points I want to draw your attention to from this text. First, true contentment is learned. Second, true contentment is not dependent on our circumstances. And third, true contentment is found in Christ. First, true contentment is learned. Notice that Paul references this twice, verse 11 and 12. For I have learned, 
Verse 12, I have learned. You always want to lean forward when Paul informs the reader of something he has learned, especially when he says it twice. And here Paul informs us that his contentment is, is, it's not the result of his calling. It's not the result of his gifting. It's not the result of an unusual, momentary, spontaneous, spiritual experience. No, instead he learned to be content over a protracted period of time. So he is providing the original readers and each of us by implication, a summation, a summation of what he has learned from the moment of his conversion to the moment he penned these words. His contentment did not come easily. It did not come effortlessly. It was learned. It was learned through varied and extremely different Conditions And my friends, this, this should give us hope this morning. This should give us hope. It gives me hope. It should give you hope that this contentment he writes of, it isn't the unique spiritual experience of the apostle Paul, but instead something he learned, something he cultivated that we can and are to learn as well over time and through experience. So if contentment doesn't characterize your life, there is hope for you. There is hope for you because you can learn to be content by studying Paul's example of contentment and how he learned contentment in whatever situation he found himself. Second, true contentment is not dependent on our circumstances. Paul was content, notice verse 11, in whatever situation. And then he describes for us what he means by whatever situation in verse 12. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul learned contentment in both the school of adversity and the school of prosperity. And my friends, what what the man is saying here, what the man is writing here, what the divinely inspired author is communicating here, it is stunning. It is stunning what he is communicating and its implications for our lives is immediate and far reaching. Paul, Paul is emphatically stating that vastly different circumstances will not alter the inner disposition of his heart. Stunning with far reaching implications for us. First, let's briefly consider his experience of adversity. The man man isn't exaggerating, okay? When he writes, I know how to be brought low. Oh, the man is not exaggerating. This, This is a man intimately familiar with adversity and suffering. This is a man who is intimately familiar with being brought low. And at different places in his letters, he provides us with more of the specifics. The following would be just one example of what being brought low looked like and felt like for the apostle Paul. He writes in 2 Corinthians 11, five times he writes, I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys. In dangers from rivers. Danger from robbers. Dangers from my own people. Dangers from Gentiles. Danger in the city. Danger in the wilderness. Danger at sea. Danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night. In hunger and thirst. Often without food. In cold and exposure. I think you'll agree with me. This man did not exaggerate when he wrote. I know how to be brought low because it was these circumstances, these circumstances in these circumstances, through these circumstances, he learned internal contentment was unrelated to his circumstances. And by the way, any review of Paul's circumstances serve me when I think about my own and shame me when I complain, I can't relate. I can't relate to this list. I can't relate to the severity of his circumstances, but there is hope for me. There's hope for me and hope for you because Paul learned to be content in these unimaginable circumstances. Therefore there's hope for me to learn contentment in my ordinary circumstances. Paul's experience of contentment wasn't dependent upon his circumstances. He learned contentment in adversity, but he also learned contentment when he prospered. I I doubt when we read this passage, I, I doubt the reference to learning to be content when brought low, learning to be content in adversity. I doubt those references surprised you, but, but did the reference to learning contentment when abounding, learning contentment when prospering, did that surprise you? I mean, you might be thinking, well, <laughs> learning contentment when abounding, learning contentment when prospering. Why, why, would, he, why would he need to learn to be content If all is good, if he's prospering, why would I learn, need to learn to be content if I'm prospering? Perhaps you arrived this morning thinking of prosperity as synonymous with contentment. Let me just inform you, just because someone is prospering doesn't mean they are content. And actually, Paul views prosperity as a threat to his contentment. Is that how you view prosperity? Do you and I view prosperity as a threat to contentment? Well, if not, you should, because it is. Listen, these two tests, the test of adversity and the test of prosperity, they they appear throughout scripture. And we tend to think of prosperity as solely, exclusively a gift and not a test. But scripture actually informs us otherwise. And actually, this might surprise you. Scripture would seem to inform us that the more difficult test is not adversity, but instead prosperity. Remember my experience many years ago, reading volume six of the Puritan John Owen's Sin and Temptation. And I was not expecting to encounter 
what I'm about to share with you. I, he's, he's talking about the test of adversity in the midst of that book. And so I'm fully expecting that. But then he transitions unexpectedly to the test of prosperity. And I remember at the time being unfamiliar with that. Prosperity is a, as a test? Prosperity is a gift. It's not a test. And if prosperity is a test, well, then that's the test I'm choosing. You know, if you give me a choice, if I got a choice between the tests, I'll take the test of prosperity. So it was an unfamiliar category to me. And then I could not have been, I think, more sobered or frightened as Mr. Owen described how different biblical heroes passed the test of adversity and failed the test of prosperity can still remember where I was when I read it and it is still freshly marked in my copy of the book as he said biblical heroes like David and Noah Hezekiah they passed the test of suffering and adversity only to fail the test of prosperity and I remember being very sobered like that because of the time, and this would still be true of my life, I was more familiar with prosperity than I was adversity. Paul is aware that when one experiences prosperity, there are unique temptations that undermine true contentment. The temptations of pride, and self-sufficiency, the temptation to covet, even though you are prospering, the temptation to ungratefulness. He articulates all this in 1 Timothy 6, where he writes, now there, there is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. Now listen, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, not money, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this, note this word, craving, that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Oh my, we look up from Philippians, we look up from 1 Timothy, and we are meant to realize that, oh, contentment must be learned in prosperity as well, because the truth is that in prosperity, if we are not perceptive, the prosperous gift we are receiving provides us with some of the strongest temptations to pull our hearts actually away from God. Listen, to some degree, to differing degrees, each one of us is experiencing a differing degree of adversity and prosperity in our lives today. I, I think I could argue, given my understanding of this congregation, the understanding of my life, the understanding of our culture and our country, that the majority of us, we, we are prospering and we are prospering big time. And, and the prosperity is a gift from God. It, it is a prosperity as biblically defined is a gift from God that we are meant to enjoy. 
So we, we today are being buried under gifts from a gracious and generous God. And, and we would be wise to listen up and to pay attention to them and to respond appropriately to them so that we pass this test of prosperity. So it, this is just a sampling list. I'm making it up as I'm, as I'm standing here. Uh, listen, the fact that we are alive is a gift from God. The fact that you are breathing this morning is a gift from God. God. The fact that you just took another breath is a gift from God because you are, whether you're aware of it or not, dependent on him for each and every breath. This day is a gift from God. If you, if you are married, that bride sitting next to you, she is a gift from God. Children are a gift from God. Friends are a gift from God. Oh my, this church is a gift from God. What's going to take place afterwards on the law is a gift from God. How kind of God to give us barbecue today and all that's going to be made, all the different tastes and the flavors. There's just, listen, every day we're being Buried under gifts from God. He's gracious and he's generous and he loves to pour them out like an avalanche upon us each and every day. But as he does so, scripture informs us we must be aware that each and every one of those gifts ultimately points away from himself to God. Every one of them. Oh, enjoy the barbecue. Enjoy it. God wants you to enjoy it. He has given, Paul writes, these gifts for us richly to enjoy. Oh my, no. I would even appeal to you if you, are, if you arrive on a diet, chuck it this morning and go out there and enjoy that barbecue. Yes, it is a gift from God. Don't be concerned about your weight or your appearance, say nonsense like that. And take, take every bite aware. God is giving you a gift. How kind of him. Is it not incredibly gracious of him that we have this diversity of food and flavors and it's just going to continue for the rest of the day? Yes. With each bite, receive it, enjoy it, but also recognizes it's pointing away from itself. So I hold that barbecue sandwich. It's ultimately pointing away from itself to the God who gave it to undeserving sinners like C.J. Mahaney and you. And if I don't get that it's pointing away from itself, if I don't get that, then you know what prosperity can do? It can actually have a deadening effect on my soul and pull me away from God. The, the very gifts that he gave to point to him because of indwelling sin also have the ability to pull me away from God and leave me ungrateful, no longer dependent, self-sufficient, arrogant, thinking I'm deserving. Oh no, all these gifts, they are meant to appropriately humble us in the midst of our joy of receiving and remind us, you're so gracious, you're so generous. So prosperity is a threat to, to, to true 
contentment. We are to be on the alert to this threat. Jeremiah Burroughs made actually the following observation about the test of prosperity. What we've been talking about really is why Burroughs wrote the following. To see a man humbled by his prosperity, this is rare indeed. I think this is one of our biggest challenges, folks, individually and as a church. And I'm grateful to say your, your pastors are humbled by the prosperity they are experiencing in this church. And to be with them over the past three or four days is just be made aware of that. It's having a humbling effect on them, the, the way God is prospering and blessing this church. For Burroughs to say, though, to see a man humbled by his, that, that's, that's the intended effect of the gift of prosperity, to draw attention to God and to humble us. But he says, to see a man humbled by his prosperity, well, that, that's rare indeed. So we should walk out of here realizing, whoa, I didn't realize contentment is must be learned in prosperity as well, because I'm saying prosperity is going to be predominantly your experience for the rest of this week. Will you pass the test? Hopefully, from studying Paul's example, we will, because whether it's adversity or prosperity, Paul says true contentment is not dependent upon circumstances. I have learned in whatever situation to be content. I am content when brought low and I am content when I am abounding. Circumstances could not reach or adversely affect Paul's contentment of soul. Third, true contentment is found in Christ. True contentment is found in Christ. Here, here's the secret. Here is the secret. If you wonder what the secret is, the secret's right here in verse 12 and 13. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Here's the secret. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Oh, that's the secret. Turns out the secret is an open secret and it's available to all Christians. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And I'm certain this verse is a familiar Familiar verse to most Christians. I think this is a familiar verse to most non-Christians as well, particularly because it is an often quoted verse. However, in my experience, too often well-meaning Christians misunderstand and misapply this verse. And that would be particularly applicable to high-profile college and professional athletes who are professing Christians. Because the all things must be informed and constrained by the immediate context. The learned experience of contentment in adversity and prosperity. But Paul is not making a comprehensive and categorical statement about the unlimited potential and abilities of the Christian now because of Christ. That is not what he's saying. But Paul is not saying there that because of Christ, because of Christ, CJ, there is simply nothing you can't do now. That, that is not what the man is writing. Folks, we don't have time for the list of things I cannot do. We don't have time for that this morning. Even as a Christian, that, that list is a lengthy one. I, I cannot lead worship like Zach so effectively led us in worship this morning. Why, CJ? Well, <laughs> because I can't sing, number one. That's a big drawback. And number two, I don't play any instrument. Yeah, I can't. 
So I couldn't, like if Zach got sick this morning and couldn't lead worship and Bill approached me and said, Zach's down, can you take his place? I wouldn't say, yes, I can because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. <laughs> if, I, if I just rehearse that verse enough, I'm sure as I walk up on the stage, I'm going, I am, I'm going to be able to play an instrument. I'm going to be able to, no, I'd be an idiot if I did that. And I would have misunderstood and misapplied this verse. Can't do that. Can't, can't lead worship. Can't, I can't, can't preach like Sinclair Ferguson. Can't preach like John, but can't, can't do that. Not that I don't want to do that. I just can't do that. I'm not gifted in the way they are. Got a, fr- got a friend who plays on the PGA Tour. And, and as I initially heard his story of like the development of this skill in his life, I think he started playing golf, if memory serves, at nine. And at 10 years old, he was shooting in the 70s. Now, listen, Bill is taking me to play golf tomorrow. I can stand on that first tee and just say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, including shoot in the 70s. I can do, I I can do this through Christ who strengthens me. I can shoot in the 70s. No, that that prayer's not going to be answered because that's not, that's not the point and purpose of the text. Okay. And then again, the, the list just goes on and on. I can't fix anything. You think, oh, it sounds humble. No, it's just being true. I can't fix anything. Okay, if you ask me to fix something, I don't have the aptitude and I'm the skill. I actually make it worse by my attempts, however well-meaning. And so I can't approach that and just say, yes, I can. Paul says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Therefore, whatever's wrong with this broken down engine, I can if I just keep rehearsing that verse. No, I can't. It's not what this verse is encouraging And by the way, I can't exaggerate the accuracy of that last statement. I can't fix anything. So we don't have time. You've got your own list as well. Things you can do and cannot do. And quoting this verse isn't going to suddenly and supernaturally free you from your limitation so that you experience whatever you set your heart upon. That's not, that's not what this verse is affirming. This verse is not saying, you know what? Now that you're a Christian, you've got no limitations, all because of Christ. No limitations. And so this verse is not to be like, it's not to be put into practice in whatever context we are applying. That, that's not what this verse, the all things Paul references must not be applied indiscriminately, but governed by Paul's meaning and restrained by the context it appears in this letter. The, the all things in verse 13 refers to the circumstances of verse 12. In whatever circumstances I find myself, be it adversity or prosperity, I can be content. That, that's how it's meant to be applied. So for the high profile college or professional athlete, after they knock down the game winning shot, it is not appropriate to say, I, I made it because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If you really want the explanation for why we won and they lost, it's because of Philippians 4. No, no. Now listen, I've heard this done. I yell at my TV every time. No, stop it. I know you're well-meaning. You're not well-taught. Um, and, and if you want to apply it, let's see somebody apply it appropriately. When they lose, we're interviewing the, you know, the captain of the losing team. What's he going to say? 
Well, if he applies this verse and applies it wisely and carefully, he's going to have to do it both wisely and carefully because he's going to get crushed for referencing contentment in a losing cause by our culture who will accuse him. You know, that guy, he just lacks, he lacks competitive juice. And that's why he lost and his team lost. Look at him talking about contentment in losing. How refreshing would it be to have somebody say, who maybe missed the game-winning shot. Um, yeah, I'm really sad. I'm, I'm sad. I'm sad for our team. I'm sad for our coaches. I'm sad for our fans. I'm disappointed. I wanted to make that shot. But how about if he added just a line and just said, but in my sadness, which will endure, I've learned to be content. I've learned to be content whether we win or lose. And only and all because of Christ. Oh, that would get, that would get some attention, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah, there'd be some responses on X or Twitter or whatever that is called. Yeah. Listen. Here's what I don't want to have happen, though. I, I don't want these cautions and a misunderstanding and misapplications versus in any way to detract from the, the potential affirmation by Paul when he writes, I can do all things through him who strengthens me because these, these are divinely inspired words that are bursting with encouragement for our souls. I can be content in whatever, whatever, whatever the circumstance. Here's the secret through him who strengthens me. Me, that's the secret. That's the secret sauce right there. Through him who strengthens him. It is through him that Paul has learned to be content. Only through him that one can be content. That's the secret. The secret, you want to say, Paul, what's the secret? Well, the secret is Christ. Secret is my union with Christ, the one who strengthens me. This is a contentment that comes from Christ, it comes through Christ, and it comes in dependence upon Christ. I'm content in all circumstances because of my relationship with Christ, who gives me strength to be content, whether in adversity or in prosperity. I am content in all circumstances because I am satisfied in Christ, and by Christ, I am sustained. That's the open Secret, And I'm so grateful he's revealed the secret because this can be learned by ordinary Christians like you and me. So let's just ask before we conclude, how do we learn? How do, how do, how do we learn this secret from Paul? How did Paul learn contentment? What step, steps can you and I take to learn contentment? Well, would it surprise you to hear that this isn't complicated? It's not complicated. That does, doesn't mean it's easy, <laughs> but it is simple and it is not complicated. He learned contentment by giving attention to Christ. He learned contentment by focusing on Christ. Con contentment is finding satisfaction in the majesty and the beauty and the glory of Christ alone and his gracious provisions, whether you are experiencing adversity or prosperity. In his commentary on Philippians, New Testament scholar Don Carson writes, his, Paul's contentment is focused on all that he enjoys of Christ Jesus. Paul learned contentment by focusing 
on Christ Jesus. Call learned contentment by, listen, not focusing on circumstances and not focusing on contentment itself. No, he learned by focusing on Christ. Contentment is an inner satisfaction with Christ alone, regardless of circumstances. So, question for us in application is, what are we focused on each day? Because often the reason I'm not content is not complicated. Often the reason I'm not content is because I am carefully rehearsing my circumstances or comparing myself unfavorably to others and then complaining about my circumstances. That's what I'm focused on. So it's no surprise if I'm discontent. Paul focused on being satisfied in Christ and sustained by Christ. The man just treasured Christ above all. And he trusted Christ in every circumstance. And that's how you learn contentment. Because only his majesty and beauty and glory ultimately satisfy. And listen to this quote. Oh, this is wise. Take this with you. This is, this is money. And this, is, this will serve you. Jeremiah Burroughs effectively articulates this when he writes... Since God is contented with himself alone, if you have him, you may be contented with him alone. Oh, that's, that's true. And then I just want you to notice Mr. Burroughs, he, he provides us with this very insightful, I would argue, invaluable counsel when he continues to write. And it may be, that is the reason why your outward comforts are taken from you. That God may be all in all to you. It may be that while you had these things, they shared with God in your affection. A great part of the stream of your affection ran that way. And then look at this final phrase. God would have the full stream run to him now. Oh, my friends. Bill quoted earlier in pastoral prayer. When Job said, following his severe suffering. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job in that moment did not follow the counsel of his wife. Curse God. Curse him for what he's taken away. No, Job, Job realized you gave me all this. I didn't deserve it. I was the undeserved recipient of these gifts from you. They're your gifts. Therefore, if you choose to take them away, Ah, it would, be, it would be arrogant and inappropriate for me to protest because they were gifts I didn't deserve. And so Burroughs, with his wonderful pastoral influences, is coming beside us and saying, is there some outward comfort you've lost? That's what he'd say to you. Jeremiah Burroughs was having lunch with you today. He'd say, have you lost a certain outward comfort? And if you have, you know what it is. It's, it's, it's what you're thinking about right now. Have you lost it? Okay, don't misinterpret the laws. God gave it to you. He gave it to you as a gift. But it may be that while you had this gift, it shared with God in your affection. He has taken it away from you, not as a punishment. No, he's taken it away from you to be the one who fully 
satisfies you. Like that gift can never satisfy. And he would have the full stream of your affection, not run through that gift to him, but run directly to him. That is part of God's purpose in taking outward comforts from us so that we might truly say we are satisfied in him and in him alone. So that my friends, it, it might be confirmed. We love you. Not for your gifts. It's not about our gifts. Thank you for these gifts. But we love you, not the gifts ultimately. We're not in this as Christians because of the gifts. We're in this because of you. Now these gifts are unbelievable each and every day. But if you take one away to replace it with you, the purpose of the gift. We love you. And you've seen that on display in this church countless times over the years. Those who have painfully lost gifts. And yet where are they on Sunday morning? They are right here with their hands raised, singing these songs passionately. And if you were just observing them, you would have to say, what is possibly motivating this person immediately following a severe outward loss? What is motivating them? There is no discernible difference in their singing from last week to this week, but something happened last week of an outward comfort being removed from their lives. And yet there's no discernible difference. Why? Well, because they love him, not just the gifts that he gives them. And in that moment, he has more of the full stream of their affection. That's the secret, my friend. That's the secret. So here's the, here's the question in conclusion. What, what are we focused on each day? What are we giving attention to each day? Because where you're focused, it just, it just makes all the difference. And, and sometimes when I am preaching, I, I, I reference somebody that you'd never expect to show up in a sermon. And that's going to be true here in a moment. Uh, the unexpected guest this morning, this morning is Jeff Gordon, who at one time dominated NASCAR racing. He, he provided the following description of what it's like to drive a car 200 miles per hour, vying for position with 42 other cars. Mr. Gordon said, either you focus or you hit something really hard. That's it. That's the wisdom of of Mr. I, either you focus or you hit something really hard. And by the way, folks, that's true of the Christian life as well. Either you focus or you're going to hit something really hard. Either you focus on Christ or if you don't, you're going to hit some form of temptation, some dissatisfaction and discontent in your life relationally or circumstantially. And if you don't focus on hard on, on Christ, you're going to hit that wall or car really hard. Paul's experience of contentment is only possible for those who focus on Jesus Christ and share his love for Jesus Christ. And I think, I think John Piper did a very effective job starting this sermon. So I've asked John to come back and conclude this sermon as well. John writes about a professor when he was in seminary, whose chief legacy in his life was a single statement he made to John in conversation one afternoon. John writes, there are a thousand things I don't remember about those days in seminary, but that afternoon remains unforgettable. And all he said was, John, I love Jesus Christ. 
His chief legacy in my life was one statement on an afternoon in Pasadena. I love Jesus Christ. So years later, still inspired by that single statement from this professor, John joins this professor in saying, I love Jesus Christ. And he writes, and as I say it, I love Jesus Christ. I want to make clear what I mean. I admire Jesus Christ more than any other human or angelic being. I enjoy his ways and his words more than I enjoy the ways and words of anyone else. I want his approval more than I want the approval of anyone else. I want to be with him more than I want to be with anyone else. I feel more grateful to him for what he has done for me than I do to anyone else. I trust his words more fully than I trust what anyone else says. I am more glad in his exaltation than in the exaltation of anyone else, including me. And then he closes by saying, would you pray with me? Would you pray with me that we would love Jesus Christ more than we ever have? Yes, let's pray. You know why? That's the secret to contentment. Let's pray. Father, grant us that grace to love your son more than anyone and anything else so that by your grace, we might be content in whatever circumstance or situation we find ourselves this morning or in the future. We ask and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to a message recorded during a Sunday celebration service at Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. To find out more about Cornerstone Church of Knoxville, visit us at www.cornerstonechurchofknoxville.com or call our church office at 865-694-4356. We'd love to have you join us in our mission to treasure, grow in, and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ.